This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Four letters, F-U-C-T, just prevailed in a case that pitted free speech against the federal statute barring protection of profanity. The Supreme Court on Monday sided with a Los Angeles clothing designer whose brand is pronounced like the F word, but stands for friends you can't trust. Eric Brunetti wanted to trademark the name so he could shut down copycat com- competition. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office rejected his application because it deemed the name scandalous and immoral speech. The High Court ruling 6-3 to three with Justice Elena Kagan writing, quote, if a trademark res- uh, res- registration bar is a viewpoint-based, it is unconstitutional. Meanwhile, The concern of the three dissenting judges was with the potential of other more offensive terms being used to promote products. With more on the case, we're joined here in studio by John Squires, partner at the law firm of Dilworth Paxson here in Philadelphia and chairman of the IP and emerging company practice at the firm. Uh, He's also an adjunct here at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and he has written an op-ed about this case currently on the Knowledge at Wharton website. Good to see you. Good to see you, Dan. Thank you. Great to have you uh, here. Why is it, do you think, then, the majority came out on the side of, uh, of allowing this trademark to move forward? Well, to provide context, it needs to be understood this is a companion case. And the previous case was uh, known as the Slants, uh, titled Mattel versus Tam. And that was, uh, to refresh the uh, audience's recollection on it, uh, an Asian uh, rock dance band that was denied registration of its trademark because the term slants was deemed to be a disparaging racial slur for uh, Asian Americans. Um, That case was decided 8-0 by the Supreme Court, and the notion was that the Lanham Act, the Trademark Act provision that would deny registration for disparaging marks, uh, was viewpoint-based and therefore could not stand in the light of the uh, First Amendment uh, free speech doctrine. So this being a companion case was another provision of the Lanham Act um, that prevented registration of immoral or scandalous marks, not disparaging per se. So that provision uh, was at issue uh, in front of the court. And the court, uh, the majority, 6-3, made quick work of it. Their syllogism was any viewpoint-based provision is unconstitutional. In the Slants case, the disparagement clause was determined to be uh, viewpoint-based. Here, the uh, way the Trademark Office went about uh, applying the standard to determine immorality or scandalous terms was determined to be viewpoint-based, and therefore the uh, ban fell. Yeah, it's interesting. When you, when you look at the, the comments on both sides of this case, you can actually see a case for the three judges that were in dissent here and that they have concerns uh, of where this could potentially lead us in terms of the trademarking, but also in terms of the terminology that would be used in that trademarking. Oh, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, it's very interesting because in the uh, in the Slants case, one of the basis that they sought to register their mark was to reclaim some cultural heritage yep. uh, and uh, infuse their meaning uh, into the term by notion of their success in the marketplace of being known as uh, that name in in an Asian rock dance band. Here's a little different because this is an apparel manufacturing. It's more uh, of a, uh, you know, utterance, if you will, rather than association typically with trademark with the 
uh, as a badge of origin of the good or service from the producer. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, it's apparel here, and there were concerns. Uh, Justice Alito, who wrote the majority opinion in the Slants case, filed uh, – he joined the majority here, but filed a concurring opinion uh, saying that, you know, the statute on its face was overbroad, but he can envision Congress tailoring something to um, more narrowly that might be upheld. Uh, however, he concluded we are not legislators. So he right. saw a role for the court as interpreting what's there. Um, the other thing to note is that um, Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who was in the minority uh, and offered a dissenting opinion, uh, as well as Sotomayor, who offered a dissenting opinion, had concerns about where the term could go. But they brought in notions of that even free speech doctrine has limitations. You can't incite, um, you can't incite violence. You can't right. go to a crowded movie house and yell fire, for sure. example. Yeah. Uh, and by the, some of these um, very uh, provocative terms, that could happen, and they expressed some concerns around that. So I, I, how much then is this, to a degree, have elements of the First Amendment in it because you're talking about – speech being brought forward, even though it is being used as a trademark, even though it is being used as the name of a company, it is something that will obviously have an impact in our culture. It'll have an impact to a degree on social media, which is obviously a huge factor uh, as as we move along here today. Well, and that's exactly uh, the the issue, and I think that's exactly correct. Um, And I think for, especially for Wharton listeners, um, the upshot of the majority decision is let the market decide. Um, let the market decide what it likes and what it doesn't. It'll buy what it uh, likes and what it doesn't right. uh, in, in, uh, as to these terms and as to the provider of the goods or services. That um, arg- was argued in the uh, Washington Redskins case, um, which really was um, uh, one of the premier and most visible cases to address the issue that got taken up in the Slants decision. Yeah. Um, and if uh, people didn't care for the use of the term, uh, to denote the football team, and actually it's World Cup uh, land right now, so I should say American football team, the Washington yeah. Redskins, yeah. Um, then they could uh, you know, sort of vote with their pocketbooks and, and do otherwise. The market would speak. Um, here, you know, there was a very laissez-faire type decision uh, given by, um, by Judge Cajun, Kagan, and also it was a very um, – uh, uh, it looked to definitions uh, from dictionaries to determine meaning, right. which is a very interesting um, way to hook the rationale because meanings do change over time. Yeah. Uh, as evidence in the Slants case, they hope to affect the meaning of that term uh, and give it a positive gloss. Yeah. Um, there's a very interesting book I would commend to the readers uh, by Corey Stamper. It's entitled Word by Word. Uh, and she is a self-termed uh, uh, word nerd, a lexicographer for Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Yeah. And she has a very interesting chapter on uh, the use of the word nude that was defined in the online dictionary as having the skin, tolor- skin tone of a white person. Right. And you can imagine there was outcries to that, and they ended up changing the meaning based upon social media input that that was, uh, you know, not appropriate and it was, uh, you know, uh, it was uh, race-based. Um, so that had an effect by readers kind of uh, coming in and changing the meaning. So the rationale and basis on dictionary uh, is an interesting piece because the uh, meaning's pliable, they change over time, and it's a way for society to affect the uh, meanings uh, that we hold. I guess it's going to be interesting now to watch what happens 
in a variety of different business sectors in terms of the use of this type of terminology? And, you know, do we see a run on companies, you know, playing off of this type of terminology and going for trademarks? Uh, you might very well. Um, you know, there's uh, the parade of horribles argument that uh, people always make, and uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the rush is to uh, to register domains that are, um, you know, considered to be uh, profane or vulgar. Uh, it just uh, this was an interesting sort of reverse regulatory decision, if you will. Right. And what I mean by that is that. Uh, Brunetti here applied for trademark protection. He applied for exclusive rights to be granted by the government. Right. Now, there's sort of two systems in trademark world. One is a common law state-based uh, rights, and then you can register your mark with the federal government uh, if you can denote, uh, show secondary meaning or how the term's used or how it applies to particular goods or services. So Brunetti actually was asking for regulation uh, for the rest of the market where he owns the mark. Um, And, you know, which runs headlong into the irresistible force of free speech doctrine, which says, you know, free uh, uh, speech should be free, but not if you use it in a commercial manner like a trademark. Right. So the there will be some um, some rush uh, land grabs uh, for the domain space, but it's also rounded out by existing trademarks that are registered um, can't be tarnished by uh, profane terms. Right. So to the extent that someone's registering a domain name that uses a trademark in it and then a disparaging term, the trademark owner will have some recourse with that. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney in our studios here in Philadelphia, joined by John Squires of the law firm Dilworth Paxson. He's a partner there here in uh, based in Philadelphia. We're talking about the Supreme Court ruling uh, on the FUCT clothing label brand, where they uh, decided, the court decided, to allow trademark protection for that name moving forward. Uh, to the phones we go. Dan is in Fresno, California. Dan, go ahead, sir. Uh, hi, I have an interesting story on how uh, it doesn't necessarily have to have the courts make the decision that the public can make the decisions. Uh, back in about 1979, uh, I worked with a company in the fashion industry called DC, and we made uh, painter's pants, bib overalls, and it was the rage of the time. And we were fortunate to be one of the first labels ever placed at Gap stores that wasn't Levi. Uh, at that time, Gap was primarily all Levi brand. So they tested our, our products with the DC label, and they blew out of the stores. All of a sudden, we're in every store, and we've got 18 colors and painter's pants and bib overalls, and they're flying out of the stores. Well, Gap calls us and says, listen, stop production. We've got our private label we're going to put in. And we said, okay, well, get us the labels. We'll change production. So they sent us their new private label brand. It was called FUs. It was just the letter F-U-S. And so we kind of raised our eyebrows at it, but we did it. It wasn't two weeks later after we delivered that Gap called back again and said, stop production. Put, put your own DC label back in there. We've had so many calls from outraged parents. Uh, they're, they're going to strike our stores. So... Uh, that's, I thought it would be a very appropriate uh, story to be told Dan, that, uh, during this segment. That's a heck of a story there, Dan. Thanks very much for the I, I mean, there's there's a case of making the decision 
that obviously ends up coming back to, to haunt Gap in that case. Absolutely. And Gap, you know, to its credit, uh, was responsive to the marketplace and actually in real time reacting to that. They don't want to be associated if the market's going to reject it. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, that that was outside of the um, federal registration system, it seems. And, you know, again, the viewpoint-based um, decision-making from the government is disallowed. There's also Dan, thanks very much for the call. There's Thank also you, something to be said about the, the time. Now, what Dan was talking about was occurring back in 1979. And the mindset around these terms has changed a little bit over the last 40 years or so. It, it, using the F word it has become a little more commonplace in our culture walking down the street. Now, it's still not... In not, I, I prefer not to use it here on the air. I cho- I could if I wanted to because it's Sirius XM, but I choose not to. But you hear the use of it more and more commonly, so I think it's almost become part of the the mindset of, of retailers that it's okay to to kind of go down these roads. Uh, it, it is. I mean, it's again. That's the uh, sort of. Um uh, the beautiful mess that free speech is uh, in letting the market decide. Uh, again, I uh, refer to the Corey Stamper book, Word by Word. She has a very interesting chapter on the word bitch, which uh, is, uh, you know, one meaning is female dog uh, and is yeah. used all the time. The other uh, is uh, is uh, derogatory. And she has an evolutionary uh, recitation of the meaning of that change over time, actually back to the 1800s. So societal mores do change, and one of the um, – over time – uh, people may call it the coursing of the culture, uh, and that could be true. But if people are uh, spending their money on uh, apparel goods, uh, delivering a certain message which they uh, respond to or not, um, that's the market speaking, and the uh, the government uh, is not supposed to be expressing a viewpoint as to whether um, uh, it's moral or scandalous or disparaging. So do you expect that, that we are going to see uh, changes in the rules uh, with the trademark office because of this? Or will they keep the standard the same and, and taking these cases on a case-by-case basis? I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, and let me expand on the answer. Uh, I'll give you a very lawyerly answer at first. It depends. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> Which is, you know, they teach you first day of law school. Yes, um, that's right. But it depends on uh, a couple of factors. One is... Um, to my mind, there was an alternative rationale, if you will, in the, uh, that uh, Justice Kagan offered. And that was um, given the moral and scandalous uh, provision, and it was applied in what she termed a unitary fashion. That is, they applied it as sort of one bulk um, uh, decision point, uh, not whether something was immoral. And if it's not immoral, is it scandalous? They right. didn't do a two-part test. In other words, they just did a unitary test. And – what they recited was several marks that were uh, granted uh, and several that were denied based upon the viewpoint. One, for example, that uh, praise the Lord was registrable, um, and another, uh, bong hits for Jesus, was determined to be uh, scandalous, and yeah. so therefore was denied. Um, but what they were doing in that was setting up a uh, basis that they showed the trademark office perhaps was applying the standard in an arbitrary and capricious manner. Right. Now, to um, agency uh, law aficionados, uh, arbitrary and capricious is a, um, is a uh, loaded term. It's a legal term for when an uh, Article I agency uh, applies a rule in an inconsistent manner. And if it does that, you can't, uh, the, uh, the regulation or statute will be uh, struck down. So I think they were sending a warning shot uh, across the bow to whether the 
uh, agency reacts by rulemaking, and we can talk about whether they can do that or not, or yeah. Congress acts by legislation, that they have something that's tailored that is less apt to be applied in an arbitrary, capricious manner uh, and not use broad terms like immoral, scandalous. I guess then when you talk about this specifically, it's very hard, I think, to – obviously the trademark office was setting a quote-unquote standard. That that was their expectation. But when you're talking about the mindset of millions of people, which in many cases is going to be vastly different from somebody walking on one side of the street to somebody walking on the other side of the street, it's very hard to keep that standard when that mindset is going to be different. Absolutely. It, it, it starts to depend uh, on the eyes of the beholder. And don't forget the uh, trademark office uh, uh, examiners and patent office examiners, they're real people too. Uh, they live in the real world and they have to make decisions based upon um, their uh, experience and background. And the tra- Lanham Act was uh, um, uh, enforced in a series of rules that the agency, the examiner, is supposed to apply yeah. in making these determinations. Uh, and again, the extent that it's viewpoint based, it no longer stands. That's why I was initially surprised when the Supreme Court took this case uh, after the Slants decision. Um, but now it's clear. It's really any provision that is going to express uh, government viewpoint, even if you're applying to the government for rights and asking them to regulate based upon that. Right won't be able to stand. But I guess Congress, you mentioned whether or not Congress would, would would take this up and make some sort of decision. Obviously, I don't think right now they would. It, it's very hard to get any kind of you know uh, consensus on anything in Washington right now. I, I could see this maybe as something that would be down the road in a year or two, but then the question becomes, in a year or two, is it basically forgotten and not even not even on the radar of people? Well, you know, uh, uh, memories, just like fashion, can be very fickle. And it would be interesting to see whether this falls out of favor uh, in terms of T-shirt sales. Uh, I would say, um, reading the opinion, I would uh, um, uh, call out to Supreme Court uh, historians and aficionados out there. Uh, Justice Kagan's decision was very interesting from a statutory interpretation provision. Um, uh, Justice Roberts and the other dissenters uh, offered a rationale to narrowly interpret the statute so it could be saved. Yeah. Justice uh, Kagan said, that's not what the statute says. We have to give, uh, f- uh, mean, uh, you know, interpret it uh, in the sort of plain meaning context that the law was enacted. And to my mind, somewhere uh, Justice Scalia was smiling because Justice Scalia used to be all about plain meaning. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I'll, I'll harken back to my dictionary point. Um, Justice Kagan, you know, looked at dictionary terms to define what uh, immoral was, to define what scandalous was, and therefore set up that uh, this was a conflicting ideology, and therefore it was inherently going to be a viewpoint-based decision, which the government should not be in the business of doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reminded of the D.C. versus Heller Second Amendment gun control case, which was a kind of battle royale between Justice Scalia, who wrote for the majority, and Justice Stevens, who wrote for the minority. Mm-hmm. And the first place they turned to determine, I think the term was a, a well-regulated militia, was a contemporary dictionary from the 1790s when the Second Amendment was promulgated yeah. to determine what was meant by the framers or the passage of the amendment at the time. And that uh, battle was whether the meaning still holds today. If you look at this decision, which has somewhat of a uh, elastic sliding scale notion because dictionary definitions evolve over time, mm-hmm. uh, and the plain meaning uh, that was at issue in the Second Amendment Heller decision 
uh, from the dictionaries in the 1790s is very interesting. Uh, the court's use of resources and contemporaneous uh, uh, evidence to determine what meaning is and how it should be applied. How I mean, there is the the quote unquote letter of the law, but you you are also, as you kind of alluded to, you're talking about laws in many cases that were written forty, fifty, you know, even longer ago, and, and I wonder how much does come into factor the the impact of how culture and society has changed, especially when you're talking about a case like this. Uh, that that's a, that's the salient point, I think, and that's uh, our caller um, uh, was a uh, was firsthand seat to that, um, where he, uh, with his FUs back then in the seventies, was right around the, the Lanham Act was uh, enacted in the nineteen fifties. So uh, Justice Kagan alluded to that, um, and again, that's the, the, was the basis of her rationale that the government can't be in the viewpoint um, business because the viewpoints do change over time. Societal mores change over time. And while the meaning of the statute um, maybe uh, needs to be interpreted, I mean, there's a legal debate about uh, how you use, um, how you determine plain meaning, mm-hmm. um, whether you go to uh, the plain words of the statute, then legislative history, then other uh, resources at the time, um, or you know how it should be applied. I'll stay out of that debate, but what right. I will say is Justice Kagan looked at the statute and determining whether something was immoral was going to be inherently a viewpoint decision. Determining whether something was scandalous was going to be a viewpoint decision, whether it was 1970 or whether it was today. What has what have these decisions by the Supreme Court told you about this particular court in general? Uh, interestingly, it's told me um, that uh, irrespective of the court makeup, um, that free speech is an irresistible force in this country, and it's you know one of the foundations uh, that the uh, that the nation was built upon. And uh, no matter what your political views are, uh, people take great care uh, to ensure that the government does not uh, have an opportunity to to uh, squelch speech or censor speech, yeah. uh, whether you're applying to it for rights or whether it's issuing legislation to regulate behavior. Um, so that seems to cross uh, political lines. And I think today's example with the 6-3 decision or yesterday's example with the 6-3 decision uh, is a great example of that, as well as the Slants case from two years ago where the decision was 8-0. Again, there was a little bit of um, debate upon the rationale, but the the, uh, viewpoint uh, exercised by the government was the unifying theme. The the decisions by the Supreme Court obviously are are incredibly important. Every case, no matter what, they have a – an unbelievable impact one way or the other. But it does seem that even more so maybe even today because of uh, of our, our coverage of the court, uh, of our use of media and social media, that the court itself is drawing more attention than it has maybe in years past. It, it is, and I think there's an undercurrent in, the, uh, in this decision if you read um, the various uh, opinions, uh, concurring uh, majority opinion, dissents, and the like – and that undercurrent is um, you have to put it in context. Um, Congress is uh, supposed to make them a, a legislation and democratic process, and their job is to interpret the meaning of that uh, legislation. I'll be the Constitution or a legislative yeah. statute. The Bill of Rights, however, is different. Bill of Rights is protections uh, for the citizenry in general, and it was designed to protect the majority from con- converging upon the minority. So I think this is a great example of that, of, of uh, the penumbra, the blocking power uh, that the 
Bill of Rights provides, especially the First Amendment, versus interpreting a statute. And when those two collide, it looks like the Bill of Rights is going to win every time. John, great to see you. Thanks great for coming you, in. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. John Squires from here uh, in Philadelphia at the law firm of Dilworth Paxson. He's also an adjunct uh, professor here at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 